with the return of migration and of course overseas students flooding into the country, we have a rental crisis on our hands. Welcome to the Urban Property Investor. I'm your host, Sam Saggers, here to help you crack the code of real estate wealth. Today's show, we're going to dig into rent gap theory. And in particular, we're going to talk about the tenant rent gap, what that may mean to you as a property investor, how you can analyze real estate using rent gap theory. It's a big, big episode. Hey, if you're watching on YouTube, I apologize for my disheveled look. I look like a bear. But hey, Sometimes when you're hairy and you have a hairy face, it just becomes cumbersome to keep on trimming and shaving. So I'm going wolf. I am the wolf man of real estate today. Hey, if you're listening on the podcast channels, you do not need to know about my disheveled look. I'll tell you what though, what is so fascinating right now is the rental market. So we're going to discuss a little bit about what is unfolding and there's a lot of lessons to learn about property investment from the current state of the rental marketplace. Hey, if it's your first time tuning into the show, welcome aboard. A few rules with this show, play the program in double speed, get your life back. And of course, welcome back all you crazy urban property investors. I hope you've had a wonderful week. Uh, I tell you what, uh, thank you for some of the reviews. I've got a review here from uh, Dan Brown Alton. Dan Barrelton. Dan Barrelton. I probably said that terribly. But Dan Barrelton, thank you for your review. Uh, He's noted that he loves listening in the car as we drive around. I tell you what, you get a shout out because you left a, a review, Dan Barrelton. Uh, hey, if you feel like paying it forward, make sure you share the episodes with your friends and or family. And of course, for other people looking for content around property investing, you got to leave a review because it helps other people find me. So there's a little plug for me. Uh, the old uh, Snoop Dogg plug, that one. But hey, hope you're doing well. And that's enough uh, of me groveling for reviews. So uh, today we're going to go over the idea of the rent gap theory or the tenant rent gap we're going to discuss specifically today. And of course, I think uh, anyone not living under a rock probably understands that there is a housing supply issue at the moment and demand is outstripping stock levels. And of course, we are seeing rents just surge in value. There's a lot of reasons as to why rents are surging in value. Of course, you could go back to the bullwhip effect of APRA removing investors from the marketplace all the way back in 2016 and 17, making it more difficult to become a landlord by virtue of borrowing money. You could talk about spatial transformation, less people wanting to live together, and of course people needing today maybe a Zoom room, which was otherwise a bedroom. You could uh, argue that policy by lunatics has scared property investors out of the market, of course, 
a lot of noise gets thrown into the media around uh, crazy people with nine cats not leaving rental properties and owners unable to get back their property investments because of basically the uh, legal structure of the tenancy marketplace. And of course, uh, with the return of migration and of course, overseas students flooding into the country, we have a rental crisis on our hands. And of course, rents anecdotally are a simple equation. You basically uh, get a weekly or monthly level of rent for your investment. Obviously, the more that you get, usually the more you can pay for an investment property from the tenant's back pocket rather than your back pocket. And of course, today, if you went to an open home for a good rental property, there's probably 20 to 30 people lined up around the corner uh, trying to get access to the asset. I know personally... People are ringing me going, do I know this person or that person? Can I pull some favors? Can I pull some strings when it comes to helping people find a rental property? It has become rather bananas. And of course, uh, if we also look at the bullwhip effect of lack of stock, well, it's going to continue because when there's high levels of inflation, less stock is produced. And of course, the long tail effect of that is just going to be less rental properties created in the marketplace. So for a while, we're certainly going to go through a part of the cycle, which is a rental boom part of the cycle. And it's fair to say at a national level, we are at a 1% vacancy rate, which is ridiculously low. That really means someone moves out, uh, you know, in the morning and really someone's trying to get in in the afternoon when it comes to that particular property for rent. But around the country, we've seen different scales of rents grow. And it's very important to understand as a property investor, the rental marketplace. And of course, uh, at the moment, certain types of property certain locations when it comes to investment, uh, certain tenant profiles are just paying bucket loads when it comes to rents, when it comes to their household income. And it is a very, very good lesson for all property investors to understand there is a formula to the rental market and really there are four gaps when it comes to the rental market and rent gap theory. Now, I have spoken about rent gap theory before. There are really four rent gaps when it comes to owning an investment property. The idea of the rent gap is just a pretty simple one. Uh, it basically is the concept that your asset isn't performing to its uh, best functionality, its best output, if you like, and it's not capturing market share of the best rents available. So obviously, real estate is a market share concept. There is plenty of real estate out there for people to choose. Why do certain properties perform better when the rental squeeze is on and why do others just plod along?
Obviously, most properties at the moment are experiencing a rental increase, which is great, but some rents are going up exponentially. Not $20 a week, not $50 a week, more like $300 a week when it comes to their performance. And of course, if you're getting an extra $300 a week or $100 a week or $200 a week, it's softening the burden, obviously, of paying that mortgage. So it's a very important principle, the idea of rent gap, the rent gap. Now, there's four rent gaps, and today I want to drill into one of the four when it comes to the rent gap or rent gap theory. The first rent gap is the tenant rent gap, and today I'll circle back and talk to you more so about the tenant rent gap. There is the market rent gap. Now, the market rent gaps are quite a simple concept. Obviously, if the market rent is $800 a week and you're charging $700 a week, and there's no real reason why you shouldn't be charging $800 a week, you've got a market rent gap in that example of $100 a week. Really simple. Most people, when they study the real estate economy, study the market rent gap, how to basically appraise a property, even property managers use market rent gap theory to analyze real estate. The second rent gap, if you like, is location rent gap. Location rent gap is a really critical formula because uh, in every suburb, there are streets and in every suburb, some streets are better than others. And the performance of certain locations and their ability to extract revenue is different in all localities. So for a lot of property investors, they buy in a suburb and they are not capitalizing on the maximum level of rent and and income they can get from an investment property because they are just one or two or three streets out of the wrong position. And the results can be huge. Location rent gap is, is massive. I know uh, properties in the same suburb and one can be renting for double compared to the other one or by virtue of location. When they were both purchased, actually, the better location cost a bit more, but what it's gone on to do is actually get huge amounts of rental growth, uh, which well and truly justify the extra money to buy the better location, location rent gap. And uh, the third rent gap, if you like, is what is known as disinvestment rent gap. It's a very, very well-studied concept that if you have disinvestment, your rents get stuck. And of course, disinvestment is just the idea that real estate, if it's not looked after, if the actual property isn't well-maintained, if there's not good levels of fixtures, fittings, inclusions, uh, if it's old and smelly and it's got strange carpet and you know needs a new kitchen, you get this concept of the disinvested rent gap. Really, how that works is your 
income is dragged down because your asset is diminishing in value and just doesn't produce enough. So when you create a rent increase, it's moderate because it can't extrapolate more from the market because it is losing market share. What gains market share for the tenants is generally more modern properties because the tenant profile is typically looking for a better asset to rent. So disinvested properties rent for less. They generally also have a lot of repairs and maintenance, which suck your cash flow dry. So I've seen this sort of firsthand. Uh, You know, you could uh, go to the same suburb, uh, you've got a property which is a bit of a bit of a lemon when it comes to its uh, current state of repair, and it generally attracts you know a couple of students, people who can't really find anywhere else to rent. Um, you know, it basically is a bit of a race to the bottom. It's not attracting the executive who wants to pay extra. It's attracting broke person needing to pay pay less. And really there's sort of two types of tenants, if you like, in the rental market. There's the choice tenant and there's the no choice tenant. The half a week away from broke tenant and the lifestyle tenant. Really, if we can simplify this logic of rent gap theory, what we're trying to do is rent to the choice market not the no choice market. The no choice market is not a good market. You know, I think uh, one out of five Australians today is less than $1,000 in the bank. No choice marketplace. That's not good when it comes to rent increases. That's, that, that's not good when it comes to your retirement. Obviously, you want to uh, associate your assets with higher income profiles, which can pay more rent. Which brings us to the fourth rent gap, which is known as tenant rent gap. And really the tenant rent gap is one concept today, which I'm noticing that is making a big difference inside of the return on investment for rents for property investors. Now I've been on record talking about this through my podcast series for a very, very long time. Uh, You could probably go back to my first couple of episodes. I would have no doubt talked about the idea that the rental market is being split in two. And if you follow the better tenant profile in the marketplace, you're going to reach financial freedom a lot quicker. So if you can extract more money out of your tenants and they're not in tenant stress or rent stress, then you're going to be able to basically fast track yourself to retirement. Now, if your goal is to get to $100,000 passive income and your rents across your portfolio go up 20,000 per annum, 30,000 per annum because you've got good tenants, then all of a sudden in the transformation of a lease, you may just reach your financial goals. Now, I look at my rental properties at the moment and it's mind-blowing like how much they've gone up 
And actually what that has done is created a situation where once inflation is put back in its bottle and rates start to sort of go back to to a more uh, normal place, then my income profile is is just exponential. Like we are talking thousands of dollars a week, um, which are being thrown out the rental properties, which is just just amazing. So again, like we got four rent gaps, tenant rent gap, market rent gap, the disinvestment rent gap, and of course, the location rent gap. Now, quite often with the rent gap, it's, uh, or rents in general, there's a concept known as the vacancy rate. Now, if a vacancy rate is 3%, basically that's considered to be a balanced marketplace. If the vacancy rate is 4%, really the tenant is in charge of the market. When the tenant is in charge of the market, rents are obviously going to come down in value because there's more stock available for the rental market. When there's a period of supply or hypersupply, rents will drop when it comes to owning an investment property. However, those uh, hypersupply periods, I mean, we're not nowhere near that at the moment, that is for sure. So it'd be very unlikely for the market to jump to a 4% vacancy anytime soon. Of course, 3% vacancy is considered balance. 2% is really considered balance, but more so in favor of the landlord, but not by much. When you get to 1% vacancy rate, you really are in a position as a landlord to start increasing rents. And again, when we track certain suburbs, the tenant has not been in charge of those suburbs for 30 years. The landlord has. So if you want to check the history of a suburb, quite often the best properties from a location point of view are in suburbs which have a very good history of the landlord always being in charge. But when it comes to the tenant rent gap, it is an important concept because really for wealthy tenants, and there are a lot of wealthy tenants out there, which may surprise many listeners because often when we think of the rental marketplace, we don't think of people earning $200,000, $300,000 a year or couples joining together earning $200,000 a year. Our instant uh, I guess, default is to go, well, why wouldn't they own a property? Well, the simple answer is there is no reason why they don't own a property. They should own a property, but they don't. And many people get comfortable in their space and just simply forget to invest. And of course, many people relocate. There are divorces. There are all sorts of reasons why affluent people rent. Now, remember, inside of Australia, there are different skill levels. There's like 19 industries in Australia at a, at a, uh, a broad level where people plug into those industries and, of course, branch out into many different services. 
But uh, when it comes to what people earn, at the bottom of the food chain, they earn a lot less than the top of the food chain. I think we've spoken about that a few times on this podcast. So if you can imagine, the highest quartile of Australians earn uh, really over $280,000 per annum. Um, the second highest quartile earns close to $140,000 per annum. So there's a lot of rent that can be captured, particularly from that end of the marketplace. And of course, real estate, we often think of it as an asset, but we don't question where the ceiling is for where things can go. And of course, a good one-bedroom apartment in the right location with the right tenant profile with no disinvestment, are uh, in a marketplace where there's 1%, there's no reason why it can't fetch big dollars, you know, seven, $800 a week. The right two-bedroom, $1,500. The right three-bedroom, $2,500 a week in rent. Same with houses. It's the way it works. So our job as a property investor is to try and work out where there's going to be a future demand profile like that. Now, it may mean that today we can't afford to jump into those pockets because maybe we can't afford it. But we can do some research to work out, well, perhaps from the gentrification cycle, I'll be buying something today that down the track will get future rental growth that will serve me or serve the much older version of me, so I can also get this jump in income later in my ownership profile. Now, of course, when I look at my own portfolio, a lot of those assets I bought many, many years ago in suburbs where the tenant profile is very, very strong. I'm now capitalizing on that. When someone bought last year, and they are traveling through this journey of real estate investment, it's possible that that suburb where they bought in with that tenant needs to travel further before you get this expansion of income from the tenant marketplace. So in Australia, it's considered unaffordable if you spend roughly around 30% of your gross income on rent. And of course, certainly for people in the lower end of economics, 30% of their gross income on rent is a lot of money. If you're, you know, earning $60,000 a year and you're spending, you know, dollars $25,000 a year on rent, you don't really have much left over based on the overall cost of living to navigate through this world. However, again, if you're a high income earner or a or your tenant is a high income earner or even a above average income earner, which is is more common, you can actually spend a little bit more on rent and still have enough disposable income to navigate your way around consuming. So it is the 
most interesting dynamic in my view of the real estate market at the moment. And of course, uh, the idea that 30% of gross income is considered a good level of rent before things become affordable is a good science to work off. So again, if we were looking for a property to invest in, one of the things we could consider is household income in a neighborhood and household rent in a neighborhood. So if most of Australia can pay around 30% of their household income on rent and you find a marketplace where, for example, it's a very affluent suburb whereby the affluent score is a 9 out of 10 or 7 or 8 out of 10, then you're probably going to find much higher income earners. One way to find affluence is a website called Microburbs. Microburbs reports on the affluent score. It scores at 1 out of a 10. Obviously, if it's a 4, uh, potentially the idea of that marketplace becoming a 10 for affluence is going to take a long time, 30 years. So that may just mean your rent increases in that suburb, which is a four, it's just going to be a much lower rate of return over time. However, a suburb which is a 10 has obviously got some of the most wealthy people in Australia in it when it comes to the tenant profile. So getting higher dollar returns on rent over time is just a lot easier. Rich people have more disposable income, particularly if they're tenants. And one could argue, and I heard Dr. Andrew Wilson talk about this, that really there is no uh, cap on what people can pay in rent other than what they get stressed about. Here in Australia, the average household income spent on rent is close to 30%. It buffers depending on location between 29 and 32%. But what's stopping a $300,000 income earner spending 50% of their income on rent? The answer is nothing. And we're starting to see that inside of economics. We're starting to see that inside the property market, certain profiles because of the rental squeeze at the moment, are just flexing their muscle. Certain demographics, if you like, are flexing their muscle and paying more for rent. They are taking the rental market by storm. And that's where you're starting to see headlines of, you know, property uh, goes up 30% in rent because actually that income profile can afford that asset when it comes to the rental return. I know one of my properties, uh, and I think I've misquoted it on previous podcasts. I just looked at the details today. I've put up the rent $340 per week, $340. Now, again, that uh, is an extreme amount of rent to go up in value, but that's basically a mixture of the incomes of that neighborhood being able to support that rental growth that has unfolded. The tenants 
or the demographics, if you like, the tenant profile can support that as a payment. So again, $340 per week as opposed to uh, $20 per week. It's a big, big difference on wealth journeys. And of course, again, we have to understand, and when I use that example of real estate, I bought there uh, 10, 12 years ago. It's gentrified now. When I first bought there, it wasn't where the gentry wanted to live. Now it is where the gentry want, want to live. So you may be at the start of your 12-year journey, but the point of today's conversation is we want to buy real estate where income profiles are going to improve over time, both from an ownership point of view and also an income point of view. If we end up buying real estate whereby the neighborhood declines in look and feel and you get the neighborhood effect of really things being run down and people not wanting to live in that neighborhood, really you attract the no-choice rental marketplace. And the no-choice rental marketplace has no choice, but they certainly don't have higher incomes to pay more rent. So the main reasons rental markets will grow, if you like, is firstly low supply. Uh, the second is if they are underpriced. The third is if incomes come to the suburb and grow the rent in the suburb. So new incomes migrate to the suburb and pull the suburb up in price. And really, this is where we want these great locations, if you like, to attract these higher income uh, demographics so that you get this extrapolation of the tenant rent gap. Now, remember, when it comes to the rent gap theory, there are four rent gaps, right? There is the market rent gap, disinvestment rent gap, the location rent gap, and the tenant rent gap. The tenant rent gap is one that fascinates me a lot at the moment because I certainly use it to find undervalued rental marketplaces, which are high affluent areas, and of course, buy real estate in those areas, knowing that the future rent is going to be way superior than the current rent. But by virtue of mathematics, and of course, what things are worth, when there is a lower yield, properties are worth less. And of course, the biggest opportunity property investors have is to buy property at a cheap price that then becomes an expensive price. One formula to do that is to study the tenant rent gap. Now, again, if uh, the average Australian off the average wage can pay 30% of their income on rent uh, and you find a suburb where everyone's affluent in the suburb, but they're only paying 20% of their income on rent, you have a 10% rent gap that is an opportunity. Now, remember, when you're a property investor, you're meant to go and find problems and buy the problems and see them be solved over a period of time. So the problem, perhaps for a suburb which has a rent gap of 10% uh, of the, well, which is really 35% because if 
the average Australian pays around 30% of their income on rent and you find a suburb that's paying 20% of their income on rent, that means rents can go up fundamentally, just using easy maths, 30, 35% in value. Obviously, if the rents were up 35% in value, so would the price. Now, again, this is a bit of a formula and uh, one of the best ways is to, for example, look at the 2021 census, look at what household income is, look at what the rent in the suburb is and see if there's a disparity. And of course, if the average income in the suburb is in the high quartile of household income and really that suburb, if you like, is a high affluence scoring suburb, but rent is very low in that suburb, there is an opportunity. And of course, again, when people analyze real estate, sometimes they analyze the current rent, which is a good thing to do. But some current rent is maxing out at this point. And a lot of people, what they do is they buy the current rent in a suburb which is completely maxed out because the income profile of that suburb is at extreme unaffordability. And again, what that means is really what you're banking on is wealthier people coming to that suburb for rents to improve in the future. And if it's unlikely that wealthier people are going to come to that suburb into the future, you're going to get a stagnating effect of your rental property, which is really just led by the market. If the market goes up, the market goes down, you're, you're sort of subject to it, if you like. Uh, we can't control the market, you can't control the market. For example, if there's a 4% vacancy, you can't control that. However, what you can control is the affluence score of a neighborhood. If more people are liking a suburb, then of course uh, you're going to get this sort of attraction to the neighborhood. And of course that ultimately ends up in your back pocket from a cash flow um, point of view. Now there is a, a big difference between a lower yield on face value and a lower yield on face value with a rent gap. I.e., if uh, you're analyzing a deal and it's got a massive rent gap, that is quite often a very good opportunity. There's a big difference between a lower yield with a superior rent gap than a higher yield, where, which is redlining and will probably come backwards. I.e., it could actually be better to buy the lower yield and go for the rent gap to uh, see the rents actually um, zoom up in value because the tenant profile is very, very strong. So that's rent gap theory. Uh, and of course, uh, hopefully it makes sense. Uh, I have spoken about it before. Today, I wanted to drill into the tenant rent gap. I think it's a really good rent gap. Uh, so uh, Hopefully that made a bit of sense. That's it from me today. You have a great week and I'll catch you on the next episode as we talk more real estate. Thanks for tuning in to the Urban Property Investor. To never miss an episode, make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your favorite app or on YouTube. I would love it if you could give the show a rating and share it with your friends and family. In between episodes, you can always keep in touch with me by connecting on social media 
over Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn. Until we meet again on the next episode of the Urban Property Investor, take care and bye for now.